Hey, thanks a lot for listening to another episode of Coaching Leaders Podcast. My name is Raf and I'm the host. Today's episode is particularly important and relevant, I believe, to all of us because there is no day without facing problems and trying to solve them. But have you ever stopped and wondered how much time you're spending on solving your or other people's problems? What I find out after reading a book written by Thomas Wedel Wellersborg called What's Your Problem? I've learned that I'm actually wasting a lot of my time and there is a better, more efficient way of solving our problems from professional one to personal one. And I'm about to jump on the conversation with Thomas and learn more. How exactly can I and you improve your problem solving process? You're going to listen to a lot of examples, stories and ways of solving our problems in a better way. Without any further ado, Thomas Weddell Wellsborg. I'm so excited about this conversation and thank you, Thomas, for being so generous with your time and sharing it with me today. Well, thank you, Raf, for inviting me onto the show. I need to start with coming clean with you and sharing with you my first thoughts and emotional state that I went through as I was reading the very first few pages of your book. I felt stupid. I felt embarrassed, a little bit angry at myself. Why didn't you, Raf, spend time deliberately thinking, how do I solve my problems? It's almost as if I just went through my life without thinking how I solve them and just passing through it. Although with other skills, I'm so deliberate. Like as a manager, I think we all sit down thinking, okay, I need to be better listener. I need to communicate better. I need to do this, this, time management, et cetera, et cetera. I'm spending so much time focusing on it. And I didn't spend enough time on getting better at solving the problem. So my question to you is, am I the minority or <laughs> there are more people like me? No, you, you, are, you, you are in the vast majority. Like it, it's been so interesting for me to see that we are really good at solving problems, but the mm-hmm. ability to understand what problems to solve. So that the problem diagnosis or problem framing, if you will, that's just like mm-hmm. a huge missing link. I mean, we've, we've known about this concept for decades, but when I went out and actually examined how good people are at it consistently. They just jump into solution mode. Like there's a problem, mm. we'll fix it. Uh, yeah. 85% of the CEOs that I spoke to in a survey, they basically said that their companies tend to waste way too much time, money, energy, solving the wrong problems because we so automatically just switch in and say, oh, there's a problem, let me fix it. You know, And we're good mm. at that. But then sometimes we end up solving the wrong problems or not finding a good creative approach. So if it's any comfort, you're definitely not alone. And that's really why I've, I wrote the book and I've done the work yeah. on, on trying to upgrade people's ability to solve problems, really. Oof, I feel just a little bit better. <laughs> so, so we're just following that theme. I know you've done that research and you've been working all over the world with different cultures, different level of management, which is all important because once you understand one another and where, does it, where those problems come from, I'm curious to find out what are the key findings, the key traps that we're falling into with problems and we've mentioned one that we quickly jump into solving the problem. What are all the things that you found? I, I think the, 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 uh, the second biggest one is really this idea that problem diagnosis needs to take time. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so there's like, I think most people, if you tell them like, hey, you actually need to think about your problem, not just your solution. They'll agree. That's like, yeah, yeah, sure. But then the wisdom we have collectively is kind mm-hmm. of, well, the way you do that is you go two weeks to the mountains and think deep thoughts about your problem and so on. Yeah. And that doesn't work. Like, listen, you will never have two weeks to go to, to, go to the mountains for the vast majority of your problems uh, that you're facing. Mm-hmm. And so it, weirdly enough, this has been perpetuated. You know, you know that Einstein quote, which is not actually from Einstein about, uh, you know, if I'm... Yeah, yeah. If I had an hour, I'd spend 55 minutes uh, defining the problem and then five minutes solving it. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a recipe for disaster. Like, that's, that's, don't do that. Like, that's called paralysis by analysis. Mm-hmm. And the, this whole myth, Einstein never said this, by the way, it's a myth. Um, Good to know. <laughs> that, that, that whole myth has just convinced people that, well, I know it's important to think about the problem, but we don't have the time to do it. So we better just jump into action and kind of solve it. And mm-hmm. so one of the, the, the one of the key points I make in, in my book is really to say, no, you can actually do this in five to 10 minutes. Like mm-hmm. this is something you can do in an ordinary Wednesday afternoon. Whenever you have a problem, you can make, spend a little bit of energy making sure you're actually solving the right problem. 
instead of just blindly uh, charging ahead and then finding out three months later, oops, you know, this wasn't actually the client, the problem that the client cared about or, or mm -hmm. whatever it is. So I think that's, that's the key other mistake I see, thinking that you need too much time to do it and that'll never happen. Hmm. It's very much, it very much reminds me when people think, well, I'm the manager, not the coach. I don't have time to sit down with you for an hour or two and then just have those conversations. No, no, no. Coaching is yeah. not, it's not about that. Yes, you can do that, but there is, there is a lot more value to it when you do it on the fly, when you do it on the go. And it's very much what you're saying is we can actually fix those problems quite frequently yeah. uh, in real time almost when just not taking that much time. Such a beautiful, like beautiful comparison, because I think the same thing with feedback, right? A lot of people think about feedback from the coach as this annual ritual, like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, we sit down once every September and we have a half hour conversation about your strengths and weaknesses. Kind of like, no, yeah. no, no. It has to be, if not a daily, then at least weekly habit that you have this practice of just giving very smooth, easy feedback in small increments. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Exactly the same thing with, with problem diagnosis. It, ha it has to be a habit of mind, something we do fairly easily, fairly quickly, uh, so mm -hmm. we can actually do it in our day-to-day -day life. Yeah, I like to draw the examples from, from the world of sport as a former professional athlete. And I always say that imagine yourself if a football coach in Premier League or any other professional football just sat down with your team every, every three rounds or every, every month to analyze the games and give the feedback to players, very much like... If the if the coach would look at the I don't know ten games in a row, then sat down and define the problem and try to solve it, it, it wouldn't work. You have to respond on the go, yeah. and you have to just develop this habit oh, yeah. as you mentioned, reframing it on the spot. Right. So I would love to yeah. have a conversation around the reframing part because that's the part yes. that really resonated with me so much. I just got like I went like whoa. So could you tell me and ask a little bit more about the reframing process? Yeah. What it is? I'll, I'll I'll share an example. Uh, the, the the I found the best way of, of explaining it is by sharing us uh, the example I call the slow elevator problem. Mm -hmm. And the slow elevator problem is you imagine that you are the owner of an office building and that, that the tenants in the building, they are complaining about the lift, like it's mm -hmm. too slow. Now, most people, they just take that problem for granted, like they take the framing, okay, the problem is that the lift is slow, and now our job is to make it faster. If you talk to landlords, though, they will typically suggest a different way of handling that, which is not to make the elevator faster, but to put up mirrors in the hallway so people go like, oh, I'm busy, I'm busy. They look up, they go, oh, that's beautiful. And they forget time. Yeah. The, the mirror example I, I, uh, or the elevator example, I like to share that as an example of what reframing is really about. The core notion is whenever you have a problem, instead of just taking it for granted and solving it, mm -hmm. then you actually spend a bit of time saying, is there a different way of thinking about that problem? Is, mm -hmm. is the problem really what we think it is? And in yeah. this case, like the mirror, clearly the mirror doesn't make the elevator faster. It solves a different problem, mm -hmm. namely that people are annoyed by the weight. So, so, mm -hmm. so the central act, and this is what reframing is about, is that step from saying, okay, what's the problem? Now, how can we rethink or reframe what that problem is really about? So I, I think that's the simplest way of, of kind of sharing it quickly. I love it. I like it. And when I think about my time as a manager and even my personal life and our lives, when we are being giving the problem, we think, okay, we've been giving the problem that we have to solve almost like, hey, here's the puzzle, solve it. And you look at the puzzle, okay, I got the puzzle. Now I need to solve it. The first solution comes into my mind. And because it feels good to solve the problems and have the answers, yeah. you say, hey, this is how we're going to fix it because we, quote unquote, improved it somehow. We feel good about it. We're busy. We don't want to spend more time about it. So first thought is that, again, quote unquote, the right answer. And I'll just follow through with it. And we just perpetuate the same circle. And by the time we know, as you mentioned, is that common wisdom of, hey, here's the problem. Give me the answer and move on and move on. And we don't even stop and think. What you're saying, when somebody offers you a problem or if you face the problem, ask yourself, is that the right problem that I'm solving, right? Yeah, yes, exactly. And I'd add to that, if you really want to make this more impactful, mm -hmm. you want to have a couple of people you do it with because right. there, there is something weird about, you know, we have a problem, but we can be too close to our own problems to see them clearly. Mm -hmm. And so you can, you can try to reframe your own problems and you can, but it's just much, much faster, quicker, and more powerful to like, if you can get one or two colleagues or friends to mm -hmm. get like, invite them into that conversation and say, 
hey, I have a problem, but I'm not actually sure I'm thinking correctly about the problem. Can, can you like, can you ask questions? Can you help me challenge my own thinking on this? Mm-hmm. Very, very powerful shortcut to like basically spotting your own blind angles, if you will. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's a little bit more of a team practice almost than an individual skill in, in some sense. Yeah, and I like that advice because, again, from human nature, we're a little bit biased. And if we assume something, we want to prove ourselves right, and we just dig that hole, just go through that path continuously. And the, the longer we go, the further away from the, the problems that we're trying to solve we are, and then we're wasting that time and that energy. So I like the, the, just the idea of, hey, ask someone else, whether it's your coworkers, your, your spouse, someone else, to just look at the same problem. Now, you already kind of mentioned, but I just want to capture it uh, as well. How do I frame the question to my people around the problem itself? Because I've got a feeling that, especially the leader, the most influential leader, the one that is at top, the way they ask questions and present the problems and solution and, and mentioning this is possible solution or so, already creates a barrier from yeah. that brainstorming. So how should I approach that question in that, in that request? Yeah, I think you you share the problem, but then you make clear to people what the intent of the conversation is. So mm-hmm. there's, no, there's no magic formula, but the very simple sentence that I often ask is kind of, are we solving the right problem here? To, right. to deliberately, especially as a leader, instead of taking that usual role of saying, I have all the answers, mm-hmm. um, Going in and saying, folks, we have a big problem with this client. I'm not sure we understand the problem correctly. What are your thoughts on it? Like, how, do, we need to, do we need to think differently about the problem before we go out and deliver this solution for them? And typically, you know, many of the professional uh, kind of, whether they're coaches or consultants, or they'll tell you that if you talk to a client and a client has a problem, like, two out of three times, it's actually not that problem you need to solve. They mm-hmm. ask for one thing, but what they really need is something else. And it is your job to go in and figure out, wait, what's the underlying need here? What, how, mm-hmm. how do we genuinely help them versus just giving them what they ask for? So kind of feeling like it's, it's always describing is what it's with the, uh, with the feedback problems. I'll go, go, go to it. We'll talk about it a little bit later on. Now, so when you've mentioned that, uh, having that conversation with your team and presenting the problem, the first thing that popped into my mind that if I was managing the teams again, what I would do, I would share your story about the elevator. And then if I would go and ask my team to join me, I would go, hey, I've got the elevator problem. And here's the problem. So I'm yeah. immediately telling them that there is something probably wrong with that problem and I'm looking at it from the wrong angle. Can you help me? So I would proactively go yeah. and say, hey, this is the story. This is how we tend to approach it. We're going to work on it. And every time I'm facing problems, I'll go, hey, I've got the elevator problem, guys. I need your support. Exactly. That, that's why I love that elevator example because you can explain it in 30 seconds and mm-hmm. then people understand what you're trying to do. Like, yes, but- absolutely. So... Let's just go through through that reframing thing. Uh, and you mentioned we're jumping into the solution. There is there's an example that I solved and I would like to share with you guys. And yeah. it took me four years to solve it. And I thought I'm I'm I was actually proud about my first solution. And then I discovered that my probably my framing was good, but then the solution was wrong. And that may be something that you also discovered. So for those who are listening to podcasts and audiobooks, then you might face the same challenge like I did. And that was that, hey, it's great to be inspired. It's great to have all that knowledge and wisdom, but I can't put it into the context. I can't put it into practice because I forget it. So just overload with the data. So I thought I need a better ways of capturing it all. So my first problem was, well, I don't have time for notes. I need notes, but I don't have time for notes. So I was like, oh, what I'll do is I'll screenshot the part of the, the interview that I really like. And I go back to it and I make notes on my laptop and my, and my books, and I'll have it. And that was the system that I've been using for a few years, and it worked. So, quote unquote, in solve the problem. What I didn't realize, it wasn't the best solution. There is a better solution, a lot better, a lot more efficient, because this one became very time consuming and mm. it wasn't very efficient. And then I just left it and I just forgot about it because I knew the more screenshots I do, the more mess I create for myself. I have to go through 2,000 screenshots, and, and I was like, ah, ah, and it's just, I was carrying on. A few days ago, what I realized is that I can record the, the actual part. So when you, do, when you press the screenshot to record, it records the audio as well from the book or from the podcast. Mm. It's like, oh, that's good. I've got now a notes of the person who actually talks. So I no longer have to look at my screenshot, go nice. back to the episode, 
rewind it and check it. I've got this. So I was like, yes, I've solved the problem. And then they later, I've realized again, coincidentally, without any practice, I was like, what if I was recording and then switch to my note on my phone and make my mental notes? So what I have right now is I've got a 20 second screenshot recorded with, let's say you, Thomas, talking about a certain uh, process of reframing and I'm writing on the screen. But how about this? How does that relate to my feedback? So now what I have, 20 seconds recording with you coaching me or any experts coaching me and my mental notes in one go without going in too many places. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, so I, I find this super interesting because I, I do a little bit of a similar thing, not technological, but just like whenever you run into something useful, you put it down somewhere. You want to keep it for future reference, right? Mm-hmm. My own thinking on this evolved a little bit, uh, and my, my goals may be different from yours here, but the question for me is, I'm thinking about this problem as storing for later retrieval. Like I have yeah. this idea that I build a library of uh, interesting things yeah. that I can then somehow access later. But when I think about it, my real goal is not to have that library. My real goal is to put it into practice. Yeah, And so what I'm trying to make myself do, whenever I run into something really interesting, I try to force myself to use it within the next two or three days. Because instead of it like lying on some imagined library shelf, electronic or otherwise, mm-hmm. then maybe I can start building it into my habits. And I think that, that to me is the ultimate goal for many of the things that I'm trying to learn is, is not just understanding it, but actually getting it into practice as well. Um, and that, that might be a slightly different problem to solve for than, than what you're mentioning here. It is. It's, it's essentially, the both are, to me are important, but I wasn't even considering that part to put it into practice. Because in my head, if I start it and come back to it, at some point, I'll put it into practice. Hmm. But by reframing oh, nice. the problem, yeah. then you already focus and you're more likely put into practice and, and memory. So I really... I really like it. But from that exercise only, from the podcast, uh, I've realized a few things that perhaps the initial framework, well, you just proved maybe the framing wasn't that, that good. Or maybe there are two framings. I thought the framing is good, the solution was good, but it wasn't actually. And mm. what was interesting to me is that I figured it out coincidentally. It wasn't something that I've done on purpose. To I didn't sit down and then do it. And it was kind of like in the moment, reframing it just because it happened. But I want to get better at it. So... Why you to help me get better at reframing? So let's just imagine for a second that I'm, again, a manager who's got all this passion and willingness to, to change the world and yes. to be the best possible leader. And I said, you know what? Actually, problem solving is something I need to focus on. Where do I yes. start? I would say uh, we covered a little bit the process, which is really mm-hmm. just to go in, state the problem, and then get one or two other people to try to help you challenge your thinking on it. Mm-hmm. Now, let's kind of look at how you get better at actually doing that. What I, what I did in my work is effectively to surface some strategies for questioning that are more powerful than others. A, a, a classic example is everybody's been told this thing about asking five whys, like, you know, to, to <laughs> dig deeper into the problem. That's not always that great because that actually traps you in the first framing of the problem. You, you start asking, why is the elevator slow? What you want to do instead is to try to look outside the frame. And with that, I mean, trying to, when you have a problem in front of you, actually think about what's missing. Asking the question, not why, why is the elevator slow, but is the speed of the elevator the right thing to focus on? Or is there something else going on? Are the mm-hmm. tenants super angry with the landlord? Uh, and this is just their way of kind of getting back, back at him or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So... That's one of the central strategies of understanding what questions to ask, because not all questions are equally powerful. Another powerful one I, applies to, re, uh, to uh, feedback as well, is to understand your goals. Mm-hmm. Very often we, we, we want to get somewhere, there's a problem kind of stopping us from getting there, and then we put all of our effort into looking at the problem without actually questioning, do we really want to go here? Or is there a different way of succeeding? Uh, is there another way? of achieving what we want to achieve. So the, the book kind of shares different strategies for doing that, two of which I've mentioned here, uh, looking outside the frame and rethinking your goals, for instance. So i just make quick notes because there's something important that you've mentioned at Clock 10. That is, is there another goal that we want to achieve? But I believe that we tend to focus on another goal that I want to achieve for you, for my team, for my 
business. Do I get it right? Yeah, and and I think that's one of the uh, challenges, of course, of working together to figure out the alignment of goals. Mm -hmm. Because you will often end up realizing that people have multiple goals. Well, they want to achieve something, but they also want validation. And they also want job security. They also want, you know, people want many things. And if you don't understand what those goals are, you're actually going to get it wrong. A classic example is, let's say you work with a really demanding client and whenever you provide them with some information, they ask for more information. Now, one goal here, of course, from the client's behalf is to understand exactly what's happening in detail. I would wager in that situation, the, t the real goal to look at is actually a feeling of fear and dealing with, certain, uh, like with uncertainty. When people feel out of control, Mm -hmm. They often react by asking for more information. Mm -hmm. And often that solution to that is not to keep giving them information, but to give them a little bit of information and then to assure them that they're going to be fine. To go in and say, oh, by the way, we've actually run this thing with uh, 15 clients and here are some of the old testimonials. They really love it. Uh, you know, And you can, by the way, access a recording of some of the old stuff. So you deal with the unspoken goal as well, which is to feel certainty around mm -hmm. uh, whatever you're doing with them. Yeah. So typically as a, in a work environment, most of the conversations around personal development and goals are framed and, and literally framed during those every September conversation that you've mentioned into what's your next goal within my organization and then kind of like climb the ladder type of thing. And then we, we stop in that thinking like, you know, my next goal is to be promoted, although not everyone wants to be promoted people want more cash, more money, yes. because, well, we have our needs. We, you know, we have family, perhaps I'm planning to have a second or third child. My real goal is to provide for them. My goal might not be to climb up the ladder, right? So we need exactly. to ask the right questions. So we're not starting, uh, setting ourselves on the path that is completely wrong. And once you go on that path of management that you didn't, didn't really want, that's a whole world of burnout and stress ahead of you just because we didn't frame it in a first place. Exactly. Right. exactly. Yeah, with both problems and goals, you always want to ask, why is that important to you? Like, why is that a problem for you? Or why is that goal important to you? What are you, like with the promotion, what are you trying to achieve? Well, mm -hmm. it's really about financing my kid's college, college education. Right. Okay, well, we can't actually promote you now because, but we can figure out a, a cash bonus at the end of the year or what, whatever kind of the, the way forward potentially is there. Mm. You mentioned this classical uh, five, ask five whys. Now, from my practice as a, as a feedback coach, when I realized it's quite commonly to ask why questions at work. And what I realized is that the very, you're putting people on the back heel. If you keep on asking why, 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 it's, it's annoying. It's yeah, annoying. Yes. Are, you trying, are you trying to catch me on something here? Um, although, yeah, the why's questions are a little bit better when the process, why it's broken, why, et cetera. It's even more important to ask them when you when you having a coaching conversation. Stop asking that many why's even at all almost because they're very much cornering people. It's like why why why? It's it's just it's just but like I always stop on second why and you keep on asking me why. I'm like, yeah, what yeah. are you doing now? You're trying to make me look look dumb in front of everyone else, right? That sort of feeling it actually has rather than just let's just yeah. work it out together. So I love the advice of so many why's. Yeah? There's a huge component you're pointing out here, which is around the trust. Like if you're coaching somebody else, like do they feel that you are on their side and that you're genuinely in, in, interested in, under, in understanding their problem and their goals? Mm -hmm. Or are you just kind of an, an annoying manager pushing them to, uh, you know, without respect for, for who they are, how they think about the world? Mm -hmm. Got it. So I would like to, Thomas, work through a little bit around Let's just solve some problem. And one thing that I that I would like to maybe discuss is very close to my heart, which is a feedback. And so let's just use a little bit of your your expertise and see if my things that I arrived to my conclusions are the right one, or I can expand on it. But also, I'd like to provide a little bit more context to everyone else how we solve certain problems. So again, I'll go back to the idea of me being the manager. And I want to change the feedback culture in my working organization. And I'm great. And one of the first questions we ask, so why we have problems with feedback is typically people start mentioning, well, because managers don't know how to provide it, because people don't listen, people don't like feedback, and so on and so forth. And what we typically end up with is trying to solve that problem by improving our skills to provide the feedback, which I think is the wrong place to start, really. But let's just wind, wind it back. So if I want to improve my feedback culture, 
what questions I should ask myself first to reject that commonly known wisdom and assumptions that yes. I already have, because I already have those assumptions, right? What yeah. would be the first sort of questions I should need to ask myself? Uh, I, I'd say the first one is, uh, what's stopping you right now from having a better feedback culture? Because there's not, again, remember, I'm all about not applying the solution before you understand mm -hmm. what problem you're trying to solve. And you might actually realize that there's different things at play. Like, you mm -hmm. know, oh, is it fear? that's stopping people uh is then if that if it's fear is that justified because people get punished or is it just kind of slightly irrational that people have this mm -hmm. is it that they don't have role models who who show this uh for the listeners here before we started this call raf told me it was okay to swear on the podcast like mm -hmm. people don't do that on but they when you see somebody else doing it you think okay that's fine so you, my initial question would actually be to diagnose what's going on in your workplace right now since people don't give good uh, feedback or proper helpful feedback to each other. Is it lack of skills? Is it lack of a process? Is it lack of uh, the like the understanding of what feedback should do? Mm -hmm. Or what, what's the thing? And I'm curious, by the way, I'm, I'm curious, Raf, to hear like, what would you say is the uh, biggest barrier? Like what, right. what is stopping feed, good feedback cultures? So there are two different answers that I need to give you. There is one that is rough today that will share that with you. And there is rough me as a manager who would also fall into that common uh, sort of wisdom. Now, one trap that I felt right at the beginning is that because I'm, I'm a former pro athlete and I'm so wired into feedback, my understanding and relationship with feedback is different than most people. Um, as in, I really understand the value of it. And here's the thing, we all understand the value but as soon as we have the conversation, things are going completely different. So you already mentioned the fear and the lack of skills. The lack mm. of skills will be the first one. Like managers don't know how to provide. I don't know how to tell people not to upset them. So we are framing this goal and putting it in smaller boxes that ends up with, I don't know how to provide. So I need to get better at providing the feedback, which is only the small part of solving that problem because the real problem I believe is elsewhere. It's part of the solution is getting better at it, but the real problem is that people respond in a certain way to the feedback and how we feel when we're about to provide the feedback, it's driven by something else. It's driven by that feed uh, and there is the emotions that feedback tends to trigger. And I yeah. think now we have to stay focused on that and drill a little bit deeper why that is rather than, well, people are scared because of what? Because I'm not that intimidating. What are they scared of? Why are they scared of me? It's on them. It's snowflakes. It's millennials. It's that. And we're just kind of like drifting away from the real root cause problems i believe right, right? so yeah uh I, I i i love so i this to me is a very interesting topic and uh, uh two good friends of mine sheila heen and douglas stone uh they they've made some very good points about for instance you also need to focus on the ability to receive feedback it's not enough to give I mean, you mean yeah. this oh yeah excellent yes yeah thanks for the feedback there there they are they're amazing uh, and uh, I, I saw another really uh, good point here last week. I, I was uh, speaking in a program where the other speaker was uh, Stanford professor Jamil, uh, Jamil Saki. And one of his core points was we become so focused on the goal of avoiding discomfort mm -hmm. that we either don't give people negative feedback or we become like we dehumanize ourselves and become too harsh. And mm -hmm. his point, which I thought was really strong, was to say, don't focus on comfort in the moment. Focus on future growth. Yeah. Go in and focus on how you can help this person in the future. Accept that this is going to be somewhat uncomfortable. Yeah. But trust that they can become a better person mm -hmm. uh, and focus them on that and tell them, like, I, I have confidence that you can improve on this and, uh, sure. and so on. Very powerful insight to me to, to, because I definitely fell into that trap of focusing on the discomfort instead mm -hmm. of and trying to avoid that instead of focusing on the growth. Right. So I'll cut right to the chase and I like that advice. And, and to me, it's, it's a really good one because it helps you to frame your approach and how you perceive the conversation, but it also won't take as much of, of those negative feelings and emotions that you're experiencing as a feedback provider from you, because there's still that feed barrier of how people will respond. Yeah. And so I arrived to the conclusion that to do so, we have to change people's perception and relationship with feedback around. So I go back to how I perceive it as, a, as an athlete and how people at work perceive it. So my understanding and guessing is that 
you are still a little bit afraid of providing that feedback, not because maybe, not maybe necessarily only because of your lack of skills, or even if you are skilled, you'd still be scared of it, is because the experience that we all had during past feedback conversations. And so what I realized what we have to do is to create an environment and work with it within my team that feedback is associated with something positive, meaning I have to focus to make sure that each feedback experience is a positive one and not negative. Because mm. each feedback conversation, doesn't matter what we have, it either adds or depletes from the shared pool of trust. So my responsibility is that each of them will add to that trust, not deplete. And that takes me to the point that we shouldn't focus only on providing feedback. And you've mentioned about uh, those Douglas Stone and Sheila Hill, right? About receiving feedback. Receiving feedback, requesting feedback, and positive feedback are three things that you can really change each feedback interaction in your workplace that will start peeling off that negative label and putting that positive one. It's almost like it's an anxiety problem. In the past, I've burned my hand against the hot stove several times. So next time I'm going next to the stove, I'll be, I'll be cautious. In yeah. the past, managers was really bad at providing feedback with me. So every next feedback conversation, I'll approach cautiously. And, and you don't want to provide and create the same feeling to others. So let's just reverse it and start focusing on creating every feedback experience a bit more positive. That means receiving, requesting, and using more positive feedback. And with mm. that, it will help people understand that your intention is good, is right, and you will earn that right and that trust to challenge people. And by doing so, you provide feedback, people are more receptive. And then you're like, wow, actually, people genuinely take it on the board. And it is about helping them moving forward. And that's, I think, it's a long-lasting strategy. And I think there's a, there's a very important, important point. And when you were talking about a positive feedback experience, doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily mean that everybody's sitting and laughing and smiling. No, no. It means that maybe a week later, you think back of it as a positive thing, something that made a difference. So it's not, it's not necessarily about the kind of the immediate mood. It's mm -hmm. about, did it have a positive effect? Like, did, did, yeah. Yes, 100%. So as you can see now, we, we, I've stopped focusing on the typical common wisdom of being trapped into, I need to get better at providing feedback. Because when, yeah. when clients are reaching out to me or managers asking me questions, how, how, Raph, how do I get better at providing feedback? As in, they already define the problem and bring it to me. Help me get better at providing feedback. And that's not the, the actual yeah. problem. We need yeah. to change people's I, relationship to feedback by doing those things. I'll, I'll share an interesting uh, reflection I had on feedback mm -hmm. because there's so much common wisdom out there about how to do it. And one of the things is like, you know, start with something positive and so on. <laughs> I, I think differently about that. I, my, mm -hmm. my own experiences is, is, is like, so when you do a lot of speaking as I do, you know, people are kind and they come up and yeah. they say, hey, that was great or, or something similar. And that's mm -hmm. always nice. But if I'm honest, I'm a, I'm always not I'm not quite always taking that in because it's a little bit performative. It's super it's super nice. Then there's a guy who came up to me and said, "Hey, I love your show, but those three slides they suck. Like those three things you did there, you can't do that. That doesn't look professional." Mm -hmm. I immediately started listening. I love the guy because suddenly mm. a, he was giving giving me something valuable, and yeah. he was like he was right, and I hadn't thought about it. Yeah, and he broke the convention like if he had started with a long blah blah about how great the talk was eh, whatever but interestingly enough it worked much much better i took him more seriously because he came in and he dared put something straight away on cover instead of that like beating around the bush blah 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 when we know something yeah. unpleasant is coming instead exactly. of just saying hey this didn't work uh let's talk about it the other things i loved but this didn't work mm -hmm. um so yeah i don't know if that's been your finding too no, on point. And now let's just stop a little bit longer on that being nicely right at the beginning before the shoe will drop and looking at it from the perspective of positive experience. By the time you get to hear the real value, your mind and your body will be consumed in wondering what will happen next. Like the uncertainty yeah. is killing us, right? And so we walk away, yes, with the learning point, but also your, 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 your mind will register another unpleasant feeling for such a long time, uncertainty, that you want to avoid it in the future again. So when somebody yeah. starts with this feedback, which it's called, it's like, but what will happen next? If you go straight yes. to the point, hey, this is what I, what, what, what I didn't like, of course, there's got to be a different ways of providing it. However, what you appreciate is that honesty, and that helps you get better. Now, my experience is the same thing. People, people are nice, are evasive and beating around the bush because they want to you know, avoid that discomfort, as you've mentioned earlier on, 
of upsetting people, right? So they were just, they, they, they're, playing, they're playing safe. So that's what you get. It was nice. It was good. Well done. Yeah. Uh, but then you like, if the feedback is always like that, number one, you don't learn. Number two, you start questioning people's intention. Now, your audience is not the same every day. But if the manager is doing it for day people, like, hey, that was good. That was really good. Eventually, we start questioning the intentions and credibility. Like, is that all you have to say? It feels nice to be to be say good job, but there is no context. There is not meat on that bone at all. Yeah. So it's got to be a little bit more than just that. But your own point. Um, if somebody breaks that convention and really gets to the point and helps you grow, you walk away thinking like, wow, my next presentation will be different, will be better because of that guy. Because he wasn't afraid to to share this feedback, wasn't avoiding that discomfort. He was sharing it with me because he knew he had that conviction that's going to help me in the future. So I love, uh, it. I love it. Spot on. Absolutely. So here's the thing. Like one thing that I made a note around those feedback notes, because I quickly jumped forward with it, is that we've mentioned a few things. Now we mentioned fear, we mentioned this lack of skills, and they ought partially right. And my concern here is that I that I cling into one that works for me the best, that is that common wisdom, as you mentioned, that most people tend to think, that what I believe is the right problem. Again, consistency bias, we want to prove ourselves right. So if I believe that the skills is the real problem, I will write the fear part, but I will neglect it because I like that solution. I like that problem because I think I can fix that quicker. Yeah. How do I avoid that? And is, is how do I escape from this trap of doing so? The, yeah. Uh, the first question is, of course, whether you need to escape it because there, there's, uh, we often use a specific tool because it generally works on most problems. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is a classic. Uh, if, you, if you give a, a, a boy a hammer, he's going to treat everything like nails. Um, yeah. There's a reason we have favorite tools. And that's okay. It's 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 not wrong to have a favorite approach. Uh, you probably have that favorite approach because it has worked for you in the past. Um, what's important is to recognize when that is not working. When let's say you have somebody and you tried your your approach with feedback on this person two or three times and nothing's really working. At that point, you need to take a step back and say, wait, what's going on here? Instead of just pushing forward more heavily, giving more feedback next time in stronger language or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Like, like Basic thing, maybe it's you realize with this specific person, it's actually not the knowledge they're missing. It's the know-how. Like they want to improve, but they genuinely don't know how. A, a fascinating study uh, I remember from uh, a book on, on raising kids is that when parents have to play with their kid, that's mm-hmm. actually a skill set mm-hmm. like of allowing your kid to control the play instead of trying to manage their play. And they, uh, the authors went in and studied disadvantaged parents and they realized they had all the great intentions with their kid, but they yeah. actually needed to physically learn to sit still, not reach out for the toy, not tell the kid what to do but just respond to what the kid was saying. So sometimes what looks like a knowledge problem or an intention problem is actually really a, a question of they don't know how to do it. And I need not to give them feedback, but actually to guide them or to provide some kind of coaching around the skill, if you will. Yeah, love it. Absolutely love it. The, there's one question that I always ask my guests and I'm curious to learn from you as well. Who is the best coach-like leader that you work for or with in the past and what made that person so great? Uh, it was, I think, his kindness. And the, the person I'm talking about here is uh, my old co-author and my old professor. Uh, I don't know if the, the picture shows clearly, but like this is, so this is my first book, which I co-authored with him. Uh, his name was Paddy Miller. He passed away here a couple of years ago. He was amazing. Like uh, he was, I was his student initially. We started working together and uh, he's everything that you wouldn't expect a business school professor to be. He was like uh, completely, completely shambolic, uh, like chaos in everything and so on. He was magical because he could go in when, when most people, they're very planned. Like say you're, you're, you are giving a talk. Mm -hmm. or you are running a session with some senior executives who come in. A lot of people, me included, uh, would go in and really plan that session carefully. He challenged me. So he said, okay, that went great. Next time, I want you to teach that same session, but no slides, no plan. See how it goes. Like, complete, like, he he taught me to improvise. Mm -hmm. uh, And he did so by just throwing me into the lion's pit. 
And and mm-hmm. I, I when I think back of it, like he was both amazing at putting me in positions with, that I couldn't fully handle, uh, mm-hmm. and trusting that it'll come out all, all right. And uh, I think again, his, his he just had a fundamental kindness to him. You knew that he was on your side genuinely. He he was not trying to. Well, he was also trying to achieve things and mm-hmm. do things and whatnot. But you had a, a you could just feel on his character that he truly, genuinely cared about you. And I remember there are many other professors whom uh, I spoke to and they were interested in working with me and so on. I said no, because I didn't have that feeling with him. Uh, Mm. On paper, he may not have been the ideal person, but in reality, he was because you could sense he was fundamentally a good person and like he he cared. Uh, And I think that overrode anything else with, with techniques or with methods or whatever. It didn't matter because you knew the underlying intention was there. And oh, I should say, he was open to feedback as well. Hmm. Like weirdly enough, at that time I was like a student. I was a kid. He was thirty years older. Uh, he was a yeah. esteemed business school professor. In that situation, many professors have a big ego and wouldn't accept feedback from a student. He yeah. embraced it. He was immediate. I remember I told him something. Hey, we could probably do that better. And said like, Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Let's try that next time. And then we tried it next time. That was amazing because suddenly yeah. you're like, Wait you know, this person is actually open to receiving feedback as well, not mm-hmm. just to giving it. So, so he's made a huge difference in my life. And also, I'm, I'm guessing it feels good when you can actually help someone else who's helping you so much. And I, I'm guessing you're very much like me in that aspect. I'm always looking for ways to pay forward if someone helps me. And I had the same mentality in the past that maybe I'm not good enough to help my GM when I was junior manager. I can't help that person if I'm this person. Today, I'm thinking about it differently. I can contribute to in anyone's life because I don't have to be that expert. I just, I can't share, I can contribute back. Exactly. But it feels good. It feels good when somebody else is like, yeah, let's, 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 uh, let's take it on board and let's move something. Let's move yeah. forward with it because people uh, are, yeah. Absolutely. And I think a, a key distinction there is you don't, in order to help people, you don't always need to have the solution for them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes all you need to do is to tell them how they come across to other people. Like literally yeah. saying, hey, just so you know, but when you're in meetings, uh, I've noticed that you, uh, when you're trying to listen, you actually look like you're angry. Like just, mm. just, just be aware that you, you, you kind of like people think you're angry when you're just trying yes. to listen to them. So that type of thing is super helpful. Also, because I think people in power, they are not used to somebody telling them the truth. Like yeah. it's a little unusual to go in and confront them with something. Mm-hmm. So I think that that can actually be a very powerful thing to do, even no matter how junior you are. You can actually go in with the right intent and give valuable feedback to senior people on something they may, may not have thought about. Thomas, did you know, like, I got the same feedback, slightly different that you just mentioned that changed my life and my perception as a leader, as a manager. I was unintentionally harming how I'm coming across and I wasn't send, sending the signal that I wanted through my body language. So here's the, here's the context. We're sitting in management meetings and I was like, it was like 12 of us always between 12 to, to, to 14. And at some point, my general manager, Kieran, sat me down and says, Ralph, if you realize that when people are going through a different problems and solutions and they sharing ideas, you look disengaged and I mean, what do you mean? Like I'm paying the most attention that I can only have. He said to me, Raf, when people are sharing their perspective, their thoughts, you look up to the ceiling. <laughs> and I was like, mm, I didn't know that. But I explained to Kieran why that is. And then it makes sense. And I had to work on it. And I realized, so the way my imagination works, if we brainstorming the problem, so let's just assume that we are brainstorming to get some, some ideas and you're sharing your thoughts. I tend to look elsewhere because my brain works like a projector. Imagine going yourself to the shop with uh, 20 TV screens around. What I do is when you say the idea that it's projected on one screen, but my counter idea is on another screen and another. So what I do, I look up the ceiling and kind of like almost flicking my eyes left to right, which to you in the moment looks like I'm disengaged, I'm bored, whilst in fact, I'm paying you the most attention I can do. I'm, I'm nodding because I'm the same. I, mm. I find it distracting like to have too much eye contact because yes. I think better when I can focus just on the listening and just, and just yeah. on the, yeah. Wow. Uh, fascinating. Fascinating. So you see, you, you just look down the desk, which again, to people who don't know you, might think you're rude. You're not listening to me, dude. 
Like, and then you create stress to them and they're not anymore as open. And the next question that comes up, they won't share the hand because I don't like to be ignored by others like Thomas just did, but they don't know that you're listening. So for those who are listening right now, guys, be clear with your team. If you know that you have certain habits, let them know that's how you tend to focus. If you don't ask, and it doesn't have to be your, your manager, anyone can do that for you because you're bound to have a certain habits that others finding distracting and perhaps even disrespectful, it's, which is not your intention. And I get it. it was my intention to create a lack of psychological safety and come across as somebody who doesn't listen. I just, that's how I operate. Nobody ever for years told me that. Imagine this, Thomas. Nobody for years told me that. What? So guys, please, if you see some, if somebody comes across differently and not as comfortable professional as you think, let them know. They'll appreciate it for life. Yeah. Right? Uh, it, it's so interesting to me. And I like another reflection on that is, of course, that uh, for you, you didn't invite it. Like that there, there's, uh, there's something about your behavior that may have signaled to people that you are not open to feedback. Mm-hmm. And so they, they didn't share it. So even, and, and that was clearly not the case. I mean, you like feedback. So oh, I love, even, I like. Yeah. So, so even the act of saying to people, hey, listen, if there's anything you think I should do differently, I'd love to hear it. Like, please share it, like, is, or ask them more specifically, what's one thing I should improve for next time? Mm. Uh, just almost forcing them or at least creating the room for them to say, uh, you know what, that thing didn't work. Uh, mm-hmm. This could be better or whatever. Sure. It is. And I'll just, I'll just add another layer to it to be more specific. Let them know what you're working towards. So if you figured out that you want to work on your body language or come across as a good listener, say, hey, I want to come across as a good listener. Are there any moments when I'm coming across as not? Are there anything, any moments that you find that I, I'm switched off? Let me know when that happens. And that's just like you're literally pinpointing. This is what I want. And we go back to what people tell you when you're coming off the stage. Hey, this was really good. This was really nice. Another mistake that managers tend to do is say, hey, how was my presentation? How was my, my shift? How was my this? And it's so vague that people will play safely because they don't want to hurt your feelings. They will go, yeah. everything was good. It's because performative. Yeah. Hmm, because what, what you're really asking in the moment is you're asking them to figure it out, what it is that you want to hear. And that's already uncomfortable experience for me, right? So, yeah. hey, so this is what, that's the one thing that I want to know from you. And that's what I'm trying to work on. Let me know. And that's all it is to it. Yeah. I, there are so many things you can do to simply like, so for instance, I give a lot of talks um, mm-hmm. and one of the best ways to get feedback is to incorporate the feedback in the talk. So instead of saying, we're going to send out an email tomorrow with a link to survey, you know, no, spend like at towards the end, ask people on the call, tell them I have a final case I want to share with you. But before we go there, could you please just like, there's a link in the chat, just like answer one to five and give me one comment uh, on one of this. Two minutes to do that. Here's some music. And now here's the final case when we're done. Like super simple, but you can do mm-hmm. so much Brilliant. to just get feedback from more people, no matter what you do, incorporate it into your meetings. Uh, I, like if you can. I like that idea. Love it. There is a very last question that I'm curious about because I work with around feedback and what I benefited from it really the most, I believe right now, is when I'm raising my kids, I'm 16 years old, Nathan, and nine years old, Xavier. How did you benefit from writing this book? And how does that your solving problem skills help you the most or the ideas that help you the most as a person, as a, as a Thomas, as in your personal life? Uh, I, uh, I mean, I use it in a lot of areas of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them, for instance, in thinking about my relationship to my parents. And so uh, this is a personal example, but uh, you know that thing when you, I live abroad, I live in New York and uh, then sometimes I go to Denmark and uh, then I would sometimes stay with my parents. And I noticed this dynamic of great to see them for a couple of days. And then we had some old patterns that started reappearing. Like, you know, my mom would say something slightly critical. I would react a little bit, or I would say something critical to her or whatever. And then I just kind of realized that this was not about how I said it. It was what mm-hmm. I did while I gave her feedback on something. So mm-hmm. a very simple thing I, I started doing was if, if my mother said something annoying, as, as can happen with all mothers, uh, uh, then I would tell her like, hey, it would be nice if you didn't do that. But before I do that, I'd go over and give her a hug. Uh, right. Like su- super simple, but just like 
you mm-hmm. speak about creating a positive experience for feedback. I mean, yeah. that's a very tangible example of that, mm-hmm. of saying if, if you are criticizing somebody and you're stuck in a pattern that's not working well, think about what other areas you can do. For me, it was just to like, mm-hmm. you know, remind us both that we really, really love each other. And, yeah. and then in that context, you take the edge off the... Um, the, the whatever thing that might be critical you're sharing as well. So that that's probably one very specific example where I applied reframing mm-hmm. to my own life. Wow. What a beautiful way to finish the episode. I'll tell you why, because this is another thing that I believe, I think we get stuck and we, we associate problems with ways of working. And, you know, we talk about apps, we talk about, you know, the podcasting, we talk about all the problems Forgetting that it's also applicable in in humans' relationship in one to one with your parents, your 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 spouse, your kids, your employees. Can you use the same methodology when you are working on yeah. relationship with others? Wow, yeah. that's I mean, I mean, that's I mean, you you have the book behind you, but one of the core things I realized working with this method is people use it as much in their personal lives as they mm-hmm. use it at, at work, and I think that's true for all good kind of methodologies including yeah. feedback that they they are applicable to the whole of our lives yes i, I totally agree with you totally agree thomas wow what a conversation i'm gonna edit it and listen so many times and make notes thank you very much for being so generous with your time now i know that you are on linkedin but not as active over there as you are on twitter right so that's when we can connect with you and and engage with you a little bit more of course there is uh what's your problem book and i highly highly recommend for everyone to get it there is all the also audiobooks available to you guys what else we can find more things about you and learn from you as well there's uh the book's website howtoreframe.com which both mm-hmm. has some resources some checklists uh theory overview if you're into that uh, type of thing and and additional other other goodies there and there's a mailing list as well if you are if you want to follow along you can sign up for that there fantastic all guys i'll drop all the relevant links into the the episode wow what a conversation thank you thank you very much for it uh guys it was, it was a pleasure thank you